0: Hello, my name's Justin The Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, and today... We're just going to have
1: a few laughs, right, Will? Now it's time for... Burr, burr. How did this get made? <laughs> hey, people of Earth, I'm Paul Shear, And so, so Batman and Robin,
0: <laughs> they, they put
2: nipples
1: on the bath suit. <laughs> what the fuck?
0: <laughs> we're talking about bad movies. And I have just banned you from mentioning how do we get made on this <laughs> podcast. Because I think that was a six or seventh time. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about a few of the most popular in public consciousness bad movies, mm-hmm. Fateful Findings, The Room, Troll 2, The Output of the Asylum, Sharknado, all mm-hmm. that other shit. Mm-hmm. So would you consider yourself, Will Sloan,
1: Esquire, a bad movie aficionado? Yes. Yeah. And he, what attracts you to that? Well, you know, when I was a kid, I think maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm not alone in this. I don't know. I don't know how people feel. But when when you're a kid, it feels good to think that you're superior to something.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's so
1: little that you're superior to mm-hmm. So I'm I'm saying to you here with shame in my heart that when I was a kid, I would watch the Godzilla movies to laugh at the special effects. <gasps> oh my god. And then I had an epiphany when I went to see the movie Godzilla 2000 in a theater. A packed theater. A packed theater, which was one of the greatest movie-going experiences of my life, when I realized, oh... It's the year 2000. There's a man in a rubber suit. They get it. Yeah, they understand what they're making. This is a different aesthetic. Well, that's the fine line
0: between laughing at bad movies, right? Which is that when you usually approach it as a viewer, you go, they don't know what they're doing. It's Mm. bad. That's why I'm laughing at it. Mm. And you'll see on YouTube now has proliferated a culture of like 19 things that are wrong with troll Two. Yeah, terrible. It's like, come on, what are you doing? Mm. I think personally, I never really watched... Movies to laugh at them, like consciously with my friends. We never did like bad movie nights or anything like that. Maybe because I just wasn't aware of it. Mm-hmm. Like I had not experienced it on any kind of forum or seen somebody else do it. Like Mr. Science Theater 3000, as we discussed in a previous episode, was not part of my life at all when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. But when you're going around in the uh young internet as a teen like we were you would run onto websites like badmovies.org oh, yeah. or stomp tokyo or uh cold fusion video Mm. like these were the websites and they mostly trafficked in like haha these films are bad
1: i kind of date back the modern bad movie fandom to the golden turkey awards and the medved brothers where they were the ones who famously crowned plan nine from outer space the worst movie of all time and they even i think they were involved in some way with this movie called it came from hollywood Mm. uh which was kind of a that's entertainment for bad movies where it had like john candy and dan Aykroyd introducing clips from
0: yeah i mean back in the day there's the famous tv special where john belushi introduces godzilla versus megalon Mm -hmm. in the godzilla suit oh you mean the
1: brother of jim belushi (laughs) that's
0: right uh the belush himself jim belush Uh what's interesting about like the Golden Turkeys is that they came from a place of pure exploitation even then like the Medved Brothers wrote that book on a lark and when they saw that it was profitable they actually toured with those movies yeah just laugh at them
1: uh, well I I, ha- I happen to know that their first book the 50 worst films of all time I was reading Michael Medved's autobiography which is called Right Turns because he's a uh, right wing wait uh, wait he actually reader. has an autobiography it came out in like 2005 I want to say <laughs> That's insane. I flipped through it at the library once and he was and he was saying that That the 50 worst films of all time, most of the movies they watched for that book were just stuff that was on late night TV because they had a deadline to make. So there are all these movies in there that you've never heard of because they're just not interesting.
0: And, you know, you just have to look at his political views to see (laughs) that he's a garbage
1: person. Well, the Golden Turkey Awards and the 50 worst films of all time are very kind of conservative reactionary books Mm. where like... In the 50 worst films of all time in the intro it says something like of course no book about bad movies would be complete without a japanese monster movie a martial arts movie Mm -hmm. this so it's like separating them in yeah like these are the bad genres Mm
0: -hmm. so recently though we've seen a proliferation of bad movies that have become iconic bad movies and like just to touch on one very briefly it's fateful findings neil breen's uh, directorial opus. Who is Neil Breen? He's a lawyer from Las Vegas? Or isn't he involved in real estate and some Something way? like that, yeah. yeah. Which seems unbelievable when you actually read his writing or watch his
1: films. Well, the point is he is one of a long line of vanity filmmakers mm. who, uh, I guess, have enough money to to fund a movie that is just an excuse for them to make out with younger Craigslist actresses. <laughs> and Fable Findings <laughs> is a really good example
0: of What makes a bad movie successful on a wide scale, which is it seems that there's someone oblivious to what they're making. Mm -hmm. Like Neil Breen seems to have no idea what film he made with Fateful Finding, which is about Neil Breen Mm -hmm. as a psychic (laughs) slash hacker yeah who
1: ends up discovering all of the world secrets well the best bad movies are the ones made by somebody who has something very important to say it's
0: all about sincerity yeah they they have something cuz that's that what we need to make fun of means, and destroy yeah, it
1: means a lot to them but they totally fail and i think a lot of the appeal of of bad movies especially tommy wiseau is I think on some level we see them expressing something very meaningful to them mm-hmm. and really putting themselves out there and failing and we can almost see ourselves yeah. in that like uh, <laughs> like like we can imagine failing on such a grand and personal scale as that. So and so ca- our only reaction is just to take it and crush it and laugh at it? Well, it, it's it's funny because it's so familiar, or yeah. it's something we can empathize mm-hmm. with, and it, or it's a horror story, like there but for the grace of God go I, right? <laughs> I mean, but Faithful
0: Finding, while it is a sincere personal message, that message is, I am the greatest man on the planet, and I'm the only one who can save you.
1: Well, what's funny about Neil Breen, and I've seen three of his films now, mm-hmm. including the recent Pass Through. Which is
0: almost a triumph of the will like
1: um. pass through has a long scene of him hijacking CNN basically and doing like a a 10 minute great dictator style monologue to the camera it
0: also ends with him killing one third of the world's population
1: (laughs) well Neil Breen is somebody who has very strong opinions about uh, the world, mm-hmm. um, but they're, they're vague opinions. He, <laughs> he doesn't really know the specifics. One of his movies, I think it's bit before Faithful Findings, I Am Here Now. Yeah, I Am Here, where he appears as a space Jesus to save a post-apocalyptic world. That one uh, envisions a world where the people who are destroying the world, which he identifies as the lawyers, the bankers, <laughs> the drug dealers, the prostitutes. They are pure evil. They're pure evil, but they're also embodied by like four characters and these four characters, the lawyers, the banker, the prostitutes, the drug dealers meet in an alley to discuss (laughs) their evil doing. Hey, hey, Will, it's all metaphors. all right? (laughs) you watch it and you think, how literally are we supposed to take this? Uh, As literal as possible. And he clearly hasn't really thought about, you know, (laughs) what are these things in relation to each other? They're (laughs) not, they're not just four like monoliths. Mm. These, these are things that like the bankers have more power than the prostitutes. The prostitutes exist you know because of capitalism <laughs>
0: but he does not discuss that he doesn't he doesn't think that, that they are individual <laughs> entities that all have their own evil goals in mind yeah. but in fateful findings there's not really much to go on in that movie because he mostly just types away at his computer
1: working on a book while well, stuff happens around him the, well one of the most famous motifs of fateful findings <laughs> is that he has like t- five laptops around <laughs> him and he's always getting angry and like knocking them off the table
0: yeah that's true or you know no faithful
1: findings not quite nudity you you see the side of his ass yeah
0: that's right like he's a lot of side boob
1: yeah his politics are hard to pin down because in some ways he he seems a bit of a brocialist <laughs> but in other ways he's very reactionary and prudish mm. he doesn't there's not a lot of female nudity in no, his films i isn't. think because he looks down on that sort of thing but he also very leeringly <laughs> shoots women and gives himself many opportunities to kiss and fondle them <laughs>
0: that's right on camera And like any great vanity project, he's a bit horrifying to look at (laughs) for extended periods of time. But he loves to be in, like, tank tops and shit (laughs) like that to take his shirt off. To show off his kind of
1: naughty, middle-aged body. (laughs) I find him a more unpleasant person to spend time with in film than Tommy Wiseau. Yeah. Faithful Findings ends with Neil Breen on the steps of Congress. (laughs) In front of a green screen. Yes. Uh, his films have a very digital aesthetic. <laughs> you know, it's really about the now. <laughs> yeah. In fact, uh, his next one passed through. I-, I swear 30% of it is shot with a drone camera.
0: Oh, but man, he got his money's worth <laughs> out of that Holy... drone camera. Because you're going to sit there and you're just going to watch it.
1: But Faithful Findings ends with him in front of Congress, like <sighs> delivering uh, th- this the vaguest m- speech in the world about government secrets. And it, it cuts to this montage of <laughs> just senators shooting themselves and or jumping, hanging out, themselves. jumping out windows. I think that makes
0: Fateful Findings. I think if that sequence was not in that movie, it wouldn't have popped the
1: way that it does. Well, there, it, it comes at the end, which is important. Yeah. A bad movie has to has to pop at the end. Yeah, that's right. And leave you, leave you coming out, hum, humming the song, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> The The rest of the movie is pretty slow paced. Yes. But in a good way.
0: Yeah, well, because it's thrifty aesthetic is so Neil Breen. It's
1: otherworldly. Yeah,
0: that I think that it, it allows it to move to another level, especially when it has glowing orbs
1: floating around through the air. His subsequent film, Pass Through, its politics are even more muddled because there's a point where he saves a bunch of refugees... Uh, At least I think they're refugees. And then he tells them to go back home to your home countries and create positive change there and change the system there, which I'm sure will be great comfort to the people fleeing Syria.
0: But like you said, he is an idealist. He doesn't think of the realistic implications of all the stuff that he's saying. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is the thing, right, where... You're tempted to be like, is he in on the joke? Like, is this an Andy Kaufman-esque? He can't be. No, I don't think so. Yeah. He's just the way that he is. Mm. Just like Tommy Wiseau, has, who directed The Room, has been able to be a character of personality for 17 years at this point. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's crazy. If you don't know what The Room is, it's a film that- They uh, know what The Room is. <laughs>
1: but go ahead. Shh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, I was speaking to uh, my partner, Emily, and she had never even heard or seen The Room. Wow. Uh, maybe it's past its due date.
1: <laughs> well, there's a major James Franco film coming to a Toronto Film Festival <laughs> near you.
0: Yeah, The Disaster Artist. Mm-hmm. So The Room is a uh, de car*. From Tommy Wiseau. Uh, he wrote, directed, stars in it. No one knows how he
1: paid for it. It has never been discovered. Famously, it cost $6 million. But yep. when you hear interviews with him, it seems that it may actually have cost $6 million because the entire cast and crew was replaced. Mm-hmm. He shot on digital <laughs> and on film simultaneously. Two cameras next to each other. Ca- like He's like Antonioni. He didn't seem to understand the difference between digital and film. You know, many scenes, he had whole sets constructed that he barely... Used There's that alley set mm-hmm. where like the, the four of them meet and the guy tells the story about me underwears, <laughs> yep.
0: you know, that, that brick alley. There's a whole rooftop set that for some reason was shot in a studio, which is all green screen around it. Now it's time for, <laughs> how did this hey, get <laughs> wait, what did I say? I okay. said you're banned. Okay. But what ended up happening with the room is that comedians saw it, took it under their wing and they're the ones that made it popular. People like David Cross, Paul Rudd.
1: It famously had this massive billboard in L.A. that was next to a major highway that was just his face on it. That was there for a long time, like years and years and years. Kind of like how in Toronto we have the Sicilian vampire poster (laughs) outside the Forget About It Supper Club or something like that,
0: (laughs) you know? Yeah. I mean, there's giant billboards for the neighborhood in Peterborough right now.
1: are There's one at College and Spadina. Right wow. Yeah. Anyway,
0: so if you don't know what that is, you have to check it out on the internet yourself. He, he's a
1: bad filmmaker for another day.
0: Yeah, that's right. But The Room, I remember when I saw it, I laughed at it. It was funny. But The Room is a perfect example of a public destroying any goodwill you can have
1: towards it. Well, I remember when it started showing in Toronto... It, this it's kind of like the new rocky horror where people see it and they throw spoons at the screen and they recite the dialogue it started showing at the royal in 2009 mm-hmm. as
0: uh i went to the first screening i was
1: there too <laughs> and i the audience was very kind of hipsterish then yeah and from what i understand it's become much more broy since then hmm. like i remember so the, the movie is pretty sexist it's you know, Tommy Wiseau is this great man whose whose wife is cheating on him with his best friend. And it's it, all her fault. It ends, you know, like Tom Sawyer's funeral, right, <laughs> with with him killing himself and then his wife realizing the error in her ways. But oftentimes in the movie, she'll say something that reveals like how ignorant she is or something. And then the audience will say, because you're a woman. And into But in 2009, it was mostly women yelling that at the screen, I seem to recall. Mm -hmm. Almost kind of like reclaiming the sexism Mm -hmm. of the film. But from what I've heard, uh, now it's mostly bros yelling that. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, It's like giving license to sexism.
0: But I think something like the room phenomenon or even the Rocky Horror phenomenon is something that I've never personally experienced, like never really gotten into it. So it's tough to approach it from a perspective that's not, well, I don't understand. Like, why do you like this movie so much?
1: I thought it was super fun back in 2009.
0: Yeah, the room was great. Yeah. But the idea of seeing it every month to like laugh at it and make fun of it can only come from the idea of having a sense of community. I can only imagine those people that see it All know each other. They all go to the screening. It's like basically like a fan club hangout. Yeah. And that's what it's become. The movie is great though, I think, as a bad movie. (laughs) Oh, I think it's a wonderful bad movie. I think that it's also one of those magical bad movies that is shaggy enough to not, like, it's not it's not hitting all the, like, really high points. So you have to go through the bad as well as the good to earn it.
1: <laughs> it's interesting because he got a, a kind of semi-professional cast and crew yeah. to make the movie. But... Greg Sestero, retro puppet master fame. <laughs> There's a guy called, I think his name is Sandy Schlar or something like that, who later took credit for directing the film. But he was Tommy's assistant director on the film. And if the movie is competent it's basically because of him. Mm -hmm.
0: Played by Seth Rogen in the new
1: Disaster Artist movie? Like, the movie kind of looks like a Cinemax movie. Yeah. But it has this ridiculous man in the middle of it. Based on accounts of the production of the film I read, it was like, this Sandy Schlar guy was doing everything he could to try to, like, (laughs) put some order out of this chaos. And Tommy later made this uh, six episode sitcom The Neighbors
0: yeah and you can see that uh, the missing piece to that <laughs> Yeah, it's brutal like it's not fun to watch I've seen all six episodes <laughs> oh of it. my
1: god I, you know Tommy Wiseau is just uh, a subject of fascination to me and that six episode show The Neighbors it's just interesting as just another portal into his mind but I
0: wonder like, what is Tommy Wiseau's life now, right? Because it is defined by the room. That's what it is. Is he still selling arms across uh, state (laughs) lines? I wonder.
1: Well, the Disaster Artist, uh, the book by Greg Sestero, which is a very enjoyable book, you you kind of come away from that book thinking that this is the best possible thing that could have happened to Tommy mm. because he has no talent, but he craved recognition and he was so upset that he got to be, I don't know, 50 years old or whoever old yeah. he was and had not got it. In fact, the book kind of implies that the the movie is this coded statement about how jealous he was about Greg Sestero be, <laughs> being a, a more successful actor than him. Yeah, and Greg Sestero, uh, the co- his co-star in the room, would go on to just... Hit the circuit with Tommy Wiseau, going to all the screenings, all the conventions. And not to brag, but I've spent a little time with Tommy Wiseau. Myself. Oh, did you? Yeah, it was uh, 2011 and he was in Toronto and uh, I, I interviewed him. But the day before, I got invited to this weird like, thing at a pub across the street from the Royal where it was seven or eight bloggers, Tommy and Greg Sestero. And it was just the weirdest gathering. Like, how do you talk to Tommy Wiseau? And I remember I was there with my girlfriend at the time. And Tommy kept saying, beautiful girl, beautiful girl. <laughs> it's, it's like, I, I mean, the dynamic between both of them is so weird. Well, so we were sitting at this table and we were talking to Greg Sestero. And he said, have you guys seen Homeless in America? which was the documentary he made after The Room. And I said, no, how is it? And Greg Sister went, "Eh, it's just the most generic homeless documentary ever made. (laughs) You know, right in front of him. (laughs) (laughs) But like Tommy seems
0: to have like a weird shield in front of him, right? If you read any of his interviews, it's always the same answers over and over again. Well, when
1: I interviewed him, my strategy was to interview him as if he were an actual filmmaker. So Mm -hmm. I asked him a lot of questions about... There's so much stuff in the room. There's cancer. There's yeah. There, there's drugs. There's this that. How do you? How did you balance that? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I asked him a lot of questions like that. Or, or and well, how were his responses? He was so grateful. He kept. Over and over saying like, thank you a lot. At least somebody has an open mind. (laughs) (laughs) You'll seem like very smart guy. This is one of the best interview I ever have in Canada. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So, you know, tell me why so.
2: So
0: really what he's waiting for is to be treated as an equal as opposed to a figure of ridicule. Yeah. Which most interviews you read is like, how did you make this movie? Like
1: I was was very respectful to him. Hmm. It was so weird to talk to him, though, because for a while you can't comprehend that he's a person e- exists in yeah. actual space. Yeah,
0: like if Ed Wood just the door
1: opened and he walked in, he's like, all right, well, let's do some questions. But even more so, because Ed Wood was like a, a normal human being.
0: Yeah, well, the thing about Tommy Wiseau is he <laughs> seems to not exist beyond he's the room, a, he's right? A and his personality. Character. How yeah. can
1: this man exist in the world? I, I remember he had two belts <laughs> one around his waist and one that went under his ass. <laughs> but even like a book like The Disaster Artist never seems
0: to penetrate that question yeah. or figure out, like, why is he the way that he is? It can only document. Well, I I think
1: he genuinely rationalizes it to himself and he's happy to get the attention. When we were at this, you know, thing at the pub, as it was breaking up, he started going around to the pub and just taking pictures with everybody there. Um, He just loves it. And everyone knew who he was. Yeah. Uh, And in fact, I remember he would start going up to people who like didn't even realize he was there and they would look at him and they'd be like, oh my God. And they wouldn't realize they were in the middle of a picture with him.
0: (laughs) Well, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens when the disaster artist comes out because unlike most james franco directed joints which are forgettable and get kind of <laughs> pushed away all those john steinbeck adaptations yeah. this one has like a crazy cast and it has like people who've seen it has called it this generation's ed wood aka the tim burton ed wood yeah which seems a little bit baffling to me but people that i trust have seen it and says that it's fantastic i'm looking forward to it so when we talk about bad movies, when, when you look at like top five bad movies of all time, one of them has pushed its way to the top and is on every list. And that's Claudio Fargasso's Troll 2. Mm -hmm. If you don't know who Claudio Fargasso is, he's not credited as that in the credits. He's Drake Floyd in the (laughs) credits. He was a filmmaker in Italy that worked with some of the greats, Lucio Fulci, Bruno Mattei. Oh, all the greats. (laughs) But he was in the industry in Italy. As opposed to Neil Breen and Tommy Wiseau, he was not an outsider. He was within the system. And Troll 2 was just... Another one of those movies that they made mm-hmm. on that assembly line. It has a distinction of that they came to America to make it and cast a bunch of actors
1: from the local small town that they were shooting mm-hmm. in. But for all their other intents and purposes, it is just an Italian film. And that's part of the appeal of it. It's that this kind of weird lost in translation, mm. mid-Atlantic quality, like, like this zombified. <laughs> yeah, like
0: the <laughs> auto-translated script that actors are then forced to read out. Yes. And I don't know why specifically Troll 2 is the one that like popped when it came to like these Italian films. It's
1: got enough great funny yeah. moments in it. Like when he says, he's eating her and he's going to eat me. me. Oh, oh my God or like you don't piss on hospitality that's a good one and the the trolls look funny yeah they you look s- shitty if you see a picture of them with their paper mache faces that's all you need the scenes where like people have turned into trees mm. and they've got you know green yeah. blue on them those are good
0: but the thing about troll 2 and I, I, it's something that's lost when you become like a bad movie aficionado we're like <laughs> is that it's competent like yeah, in the way is. that it's filmed and the way it's shot and the thing that Claudio fargasso like he wants to entertain you
1: well a lot of this movie a lot of the appeal of this movie comes from people who aren't that familiar with italian exploitation yeah. films i was watching this movie this morning mm-hmm. for the first time in a long time and it was just like oh yeah this is the yeah. same tone that you always have mm-hmm. the same style a little worse than normal <laughs> yeah frankly and, and
0: i mean like yeah the costumes look like shit but even like the makeup on the guy who's in the potted plant is really gross oh
1: hey you know who designed the costumes who this is a bit of a deep cut for for you true fans out there Laura Gemser Who played Black Emmanuel in all of Joe D'Amato's Black Emmanuel series? Well,
0: Claudio Fargasso was involved with Joe D'Amato, and Joe D'Amato actually came to America with the same production company and shot a bunch of films like Troll 2,
1: including one called, I believe it's Contamination 7. Troll 2 is produced by Joe D'Amato. Exactly. Under his pseudonym David Hills.
0: And I think there's a really important distinction between the films of Joe D'Amato, who was a famous Italian filmmaker who just made trash to make money, and Claudio Fargasso those work mm-hmm. because there's like contamination seven was also shot in america with american actors nobody talks about it because it fucking sucks <laughs> it's super
1: boring while troll 2 is entertaining it is it's got a lot of funny moments troll 2 uh, of you know the big bad movies of recent years it's one of my last favorite mm. I think because it is just a little bit more competent, and it's a little soulless. Well, yeah, it's an exploitation it's, film. It doesn't have the personality of a Neil Breen or a Tommy Wiseau, yeah. or a movie like *Birdemic*, which is made by this weird Asian American software developer from the West Coast. That's a movie where it's him trying to show what courtship looks like in a film. <laughs> you know, the, these two people dating and it's, you know, a- absolutely horrifying. It's just a glimpse into James Nagurian's mind. about yeah, I think. H- how do humans interact?
0: Well, Troll 2 doesn't have that. Yeah. But it also has the comforting feeling of this looks like a movie and I know what movies look like. But it's bad so I can make fun of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a very easy bad <laughs> Exactly. Yes. But a fun one. If you yeah. haven't seen it, check out Troll 2. Uh, you do not need to see Troll 1. Oh, here's a word about Okay, The blur tried to make it into the new room. Mm. And I remember they got James Nguyen to come up to Toronto to see it. Did you see it there? No, I did not see it there. I had seen it at the Fantasia Film Festival and I went, once is enough. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's pretty bad. But I remember going to the bathroom and the audience was extremely loud through the whole movie laughing and, mm. you know, everything. And I remember going to the bathroom and seeing James Nguyen in the lobby, like pacing back and forth, mm. just like really nervously as everyone was laughing at the movie. And then after the movie, he went up and did a Q&A. And the guy who introduced him said, you know, uh, a lot of people dream of making a movie. This guy went out and did it, James Nguyen. And he was up on stage and he said something like, uh, I I know the movie has its imperfections and some of the special effects are, are are not quite great, but I think the reason it's become successful is because fundamentally it tells a good story and it has a a really important message. And what was so weird was the audience didn't laugh like the they didn't like that because you, there's you, a level of sincerity yeah, right in front of them. Like the audience was so loud and contemptuous through the whole film, but during the Q and A, it was it was weird. And I remember one person asked a question. A snarky question. Um, the, the the film is influenced by the birds. Uh, what do you think Alfred Hitchcock would think of Bird And like, no laughing, yeah. no cheers. Everyone, you could sense this current in the audience that was like, shut the fuck up.
0: When the filmmaker gets up on stage, right? Yeah. And you see how honest he is about the thing that he made, it's not as funny anymore yeah. because it's been solidified in front of you. I remember when we played Path Through at the Royal Cinema. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the most brutal experiences I've ever had with a crowd. Because it was like, I think it was sold out. Mm -hmm. And, like, people needed to laugh at it. Mm -hmm. Like, they needed to. To the point that a guy was cackling so hard, we had to go ask him, like, you got to calm down, dude. Mm. That's a weird sentiment where an audience, like... They know this is a bad movie, so they're going to have to get the most enjoyment that they can get out of it, to the point where the most toxic thing that can happen, where people start talking back to the screen. Don't do it. Shut the fuck up. Unbearable. (laughs) So let's move on to the real topic of this episode, and that's films made by The Asylum. The Asylum is weird, because for a long time, they were just known as the people that would trick folks renting
1: at blockbusters out of their hard-earned cash. The first time I became aware of them was they had a movie called Snakes on a Train, Mm -hmm. which hit video store shelves about a month before Snakes on a Plane did. My friend, Christian, was tricked into getting
0: their version of War of the Worlds. And he was like, wait a minute. It was
1: called H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. That's right. That was the official title. And
0: at the time, he said he was watching and going, man, Steven Spielberg's really let himself go. Whoa, nudity! I don't think this is a Spielberg production. And there
1: was another one called uh, Transmorphers. Yeah. And they always have people in the cast like C. Thomas Howell or Tracy Lords, mm-hmm. you know.
0: And they've gone on record saying that they make mockbusters, but they're not trying to rip stuff off. They're just trying to, you know, get in the market and mm-hmm. make themselves available. Well, the films don't bear much resemblance to the films no, they're ripping off. No, they don't. Off. So, like, when you, even though that they've been sued twice in the last few years, once for calling their film American Battleship, when Battleship was coming out. Okay. And also making a film called Age of Hobbits, which oh. they then not have to change afterwards. Yeah. Now, the asylum on the surface, if you explained it to me, would sound like one of the most fun things of all time. Mm -hmm. A studio, the modern day Roger Corman, if you will, who's going out, exploiting ideas that are already on the market, and making their own movie versions. There's just one fatal flaw about their product, which is it's not good. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not fun, it's not funny, and there's no love in what they make at all, from my eyes. Maybe they could argue differently. What do you think?
1: Uh, I think maybe it's fun to go out in the San Fernando Valley with a camera Mm -hmm. when you're 21 years old and shoot a movie, but... It doesn't feel like that, though. It feels like... They're they're joyless. Yeah,
0: 40-plus-year-olds making movies, and on their Wikipedia page, it proudly states that they've never lost any money on a movie. So at a certain point, as a business person you have to kind of separate what's important for you. Is it you're making money on the product that you're putting out? Like maybe you're making sandwiches or something like that and they're shitty sandwiches but they're selling and people are buying them. Or is it making stuff that people will enjoy and people will want to watch? Mm. So you gotta weigh those two
1: things, well, right? Well, I think probably they pre-sell a lot of these mm-hmm. movies to foreign rights and streaming and so they already know the, the amount of money they're gonna make. But then why not just try to make a movie that's fun? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's the thing that's the most confusing
0: about it. If you look look at their credits about their films. It's cuz they work with the same people over and over again and I think the producers in charge are very specific about what they want and they know what's going to sell in China or what's going to mm-hmm. sell in like I don't know, a mom and pop store in America. Mm-hmm. Like they know those things and maybe those things
1: just turn out to not be enjoyable to watch. There's this popular perception that exploitation movies, because they fly under the radar, they give the creators more license to experiment with interesting ideas. And frankly, for the most part, it's not true. No, it's not. I, I the One of the few examples I can think of is a movie like Get Out, which was uh, an under-the-radar production for Bloomhouse, who normally just do schlocky... Uh, mm, paranormal activity films and stuff like that. Yeah, like stuff that gets released in January. But that actually was a case where he went in there and uh within the constraints imposed on him did something interesting but rarely does it happen well i mean there's the thing is like i'm sure that people could email us with a million different examples but then there's
0: like 30 million other mm-hmm. films that are choking you know uh made for tv land we talked about in the federal and right jim warnorski episode that like they don't make those movies anymore because they
1: make hallmark tv films but it's amazing how many movies like the asylum are out there uh if you follow the exploits of cool duder and wet movie like i do like they're constantly filming these sorts of movies and if you go to certain walmarts mm-hmm. they'll have an entire shelf of these shot on digital no budget horror movies that yep. you've, you've never heard of
0: yeah like paranormal entity or yeah. stuff like that yeah. uh a guy who reviews movies on my f- uh, website film trap Actually, he rev- he loves reviewing those films, and they're shit. Like, they're awful. Yeah. Like, it's just about plugging a hole and making a profit. Like, the thing right now is that if you are an independent filmmaker and you want to make movies, you ain't gonna make any money because that's the system to support you really doesn't exist mm. anymore. But if you're making these, like, cheap filler films Mm -hmm. then maybe you will see a profit but the asylum is obviously seeing a return so what are the sharknado films so the sharknado films was a product of the asylum and it was on their factory line like they had a kind of weird meme hit with mega shark versus giant octopus And
1: if you recall around that time, that trailer was being shared all over the place. Well, this was also around this time, Roger Corman was making a lot of movies like Sharktopus, mm-hmm. Dino Croc, which were sci-fi channel originals that were not entirely camp. But yeah. th- the title is a, a little, wink. It's tongue in cheek and it's kind of flaunting its own low ambitions. I
0: would kind of say that the sci-fi network, you know, they're the go to place that make all these movies mm-hmm. and shows and that they have a pretty firm uh, mandate that like it should not be made fun of it should not be a joke and that's why you
1: get very generic product that's not trying to do anything new i remember i saw some of those movies like sharktopus versus dinocroc and i'd be so disappointed yeah. that like why not why not go have crazy fun with this yeah
0: exactly yeah. and that's probably just because for a long time they believe that people did not want to be reminded that what they're watching is crap because once a filmmaker shows that what they're making is crap then that loses value in the eyes of you. I guess that's a lot. Alas, go, but...
1: the pendulum swung pretty far in the other direction yeah. with these Sharknado movies. So, did you see the first Sharknado? No, I. For this podcast, I watched Sharknado Five: Global Swarm. I
0: watched. That. I saw the first Sharknado as well. It was fine. Like it's just bad,
1: kind of generic monster movie stuff but it went viral at the time in fact I even remember why I don't understand it was the title why not piranaconda or something like that I don't know right place at the right time do you remember when Mia Farrow tweeted a picture of her and Philip Roth sitting next to each other and it said we're watching Sharknado (laughs) what yeah (laughs) (laughs) And <laughs> then Woody Allen tweet one as well? Oh, like, well, just as a side note, I think it's super funny that she was watching Sharknado with Philip Roth. It's like, well, she has a type, clearly. <laughs>
0: oh, terrible. <laughs> uh. But Sharknado 5, global swarming. So with the success of Sharknado, which became a weird hit on the internet, they keep making them. And their decision was to, instead of the usual, we're going to cast one star, like in the case of Sharknado, the recently deceased John Heard of Home Alone fame mm. and Cutter's Way, and the guy from 90210 that I don't remember what his name is. Yeah, I don't you know, know. The blonde guy, it's in Domino. After that, they decided to just pack Sharknado with cameos. Mm. And watching Sharknado 5, these cameos are for obviously the film's intended audience, which is the 40 plus crowd. Well, 40 plus
1: or maybe like tweens. I really do tweens watch Good Morning America well would the 40 plus crowd watch Sharknado I would think that these movies would be popular amongst kind of like snarky online people who would live tweet it right yes
0: obviously yeah but for them to know who these people are well
1: I don't know who most of these people
0: are either. I, it's just a wave of plastic surgery right in your it face it reminded me
1: a little bit of It's a Mad Mad World where <laughs> like it's this constant like the movie always grinds to a halt when, when a celebrity yeah. comes on and screen. you're like I
0: don't know who this is like a celebrity will be like an Olympic swimmer. How the
1: fuck are you supposed to know who that is every time I would recognize somebody I would be really happy so like (laughs) Charo showed up as the queen it's like oh I know Charo (laughs) that's right. Gilbert Gottfried (laughs) showed up for a scene in Africa so yeah all the hosts of these good morning shows good morning Britain uh, good morning America Chris Kattan was in it oh it's such a sad role Geraldo Rivera
0: there was a a article that came out recently about Sharknado Mm. where it talks about how they make their movies and the unfortunate practices that the asylum utilizes in bringing them to audiences. For example, in Sharknado 3, the actors are union, the crew is not. Mm-hmm. The crew striked on Sharknado 3, and they fired the crew and replaced them with a bunch of other people. Terrible. <laughs> um, at one point, Tara reed was asking for too much money, and so they did a vote if she should be killed in one of the movies. Oh, shit. And Sharknado 5 is filled with a bunch of crazy bullshit. But it's just so passionless. Well,
1: it's pandering. It's like, it's like if everything is crazy, nothing is crazy. One problem I have with these movies is that I don't find the concept of sharks intrinsically funny. Mm, You don't? Uh, No. (laughs) If they were monkeys, then maybe we'd be somewhere. Like a a monkey Monkey tornado. That that would possibly be funny. (laughs) What if there were like sharks Mm. mixed with monkeys in a tornado? Well, that would be interesting, too. <laughs> yeah, Take right. note, Asylum. I also don't find the mere existence of Chris Kattan to be funny. <laughs> no, or he has any no jokes people. in this movie. <laughs> but, like, these people show up, like, Fabio shows up as the Pope. Yeah. And you're supposed to be like oh that's fabio that's so funny it's funny that he is the pope i felt bad for a lot of these people because somebody like chris Kattan had maybe five to ten years of being mm-hmm. you know however long he was on snl of being culturally relevant and then he has to spend however long until he's able to retire increasingly desperately trying to pay the rent yeah with this with this don't worry the cast and crew said he did a very good job according to that article (laughs) well uh so i felt i feel bad seeing some of these people Mm -hmm. i'm encouraged to laugh just at the fact that these people exist and then there are people like al roker or kathy lee gifford on good morning america who show up and then I think, well, these are people who have active careers. Mm. So why are they here? Like if the whole point have is... having a joke. Well, okay. But then what is the joke? If the whole point of this movie is just to laugh at celebrities who are past their sell-by date, then why have these people in it? What What's the joke? <laughs> I don't know, man. The joke I is... I sat watching Sharknado 5 Stoneface. The joke is that we're in on the joke. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's the whole joke. So it's depressing. And... It reminded me a little bit of the Ed Wood movies where it was this weird mix of, you know, Ed Wood would have faded stars, Mm -hmm. he would have wannabes, and he would have fringe novelty celebrities all in this soup. But- Edward wasn't laughing at them. They were just what was available to him.
0: And I think that Edward probably liked most of the people that he worked with. Exactly. And you can feel the distaste with everyone that appears on screen in Sharknado films. In that article, they said that Donald Trump was going to be cast as the president (laughs) of America in one of the Sharknado films. Yeah. And like, yeah, that's the kind
1: of casting they would do. Anthony Weiner was in one of them, I believe.
0: Yeah. And when he wouldn't uh, do jokes about his sexual scandal, they cut all of his lines.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I found Sharknado 5 just utterly dead air, just Mm. a hateful experience, and I did not enjoy it. Why would people watch Sharknado 5? That's the question I kept asking, because it's in on the joke, which isn't a joke
0: they still want to feel superior to Mm. what they're watching. Even if Sharknado 5 is in on the joke, it's bad visual effects, the bad casting, Mm. the people that are live tweeting it are not saying, oh my God, this is crazy. They're going, this is bad. I am laughing at it. Okay. Not with it. The joke's on them.
1: Yeah. Because these are. people already know. Yeah, I know they do. The people making Sharknado know it's bad. Th- I know. The whole point is that it's bad. It doesn't matter. You, If you could fool yourself yeah. of something. Well, I think it's... Uh, I think it's depressing that like it's it's just such a lack of imagination mm-hmm. to to be like okay this is the officially culturally designated bad movie yeah so I'll I'll fall into line and and make fun of this yeah whereas you know whatever's in the multiplex is obviously good <laughs> <laughs> uh, like I don't understand, like I know people close to me who watch Sharknado five wanting to make fun
0: of it. Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm like, I don't understand why. What's to make fun of? There's nothing to cling on to. (laughs)
0: No, it's all bad. Like, it's a bunch of crazy bullshit. But yeah, that's it.
1: Anyway, yeah, hateful experience. I I will not be checking the previous four in the series. (laughs) You know what? Maybe that's what was missing.
0: We didn't know the whole story. Leading oh, yeah. Up the that Sharknado was and, you know, the asylum keep on trucking. I hear they have a
1: TV show called Z Nation that is fun. They made a film adaptation of the 9-11 commission report. <laughs> oh, my God. They did that as a joke, basically, because apparently somebody in some article said, what are they going to do next? The 9-11 commission report. Really? And then they made it but it's boring it's just people sitting in boardrooms but you know
0: it every now and then like a filmmaker who is passionate about what he does gets to make a asylum film and you can feel that they just kind of like suck them dry like a filmmaker who recently appeared on the Eric Roberts is a man podcast Jack Perez mm-hmm. he's the one who directed Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus and I, I mean, I haven't read any direct interviews about it, but you can feel him just squeaking through barely just to finish making a movie like the asylum. How do you fuck up a Pacific Rim ripoff? <laughs> like how like is it that hard? Yeah. Well, it is. Yeah, obviously. It's too bad. Yep. All right. So uh, we will continue not to watch asylum films unless they contact
1: us, want us to write a script and uh, direct a movie. Hmm. Then uh, me and Will, we're there do you have any before we wrap up this topic any all-time favorite so bad they're good movies Hmm. yes i do Mm -hmm little canadian number
0: called things oh wonderful have we talked about it on this podcast i feel like we have only in passing it's a directorial work by star writer barry uh, j gillis Mm -hmm. and another director that i can't remember his name right now Mm -hmm. but it's a canadian curio that personally for me a bad movie the most important part of it is that it has to come from another dimension. Mm. Like people that don't really understand how films are made, but are trying to bring their vision of it to the screen, and things fills that hole perfectly. Mm. It is shot by a little person, all from low angles, drenched in red and blue lighting that looks like it's burning the skin of all the actors on screen, in a tiny Canadian house, and populated
1: only by hosers. It feels less like a movie than a headspace. Yeah, exactly. And also it has a big, big star in it in the form of Amber Lynn, the porn star. Yes,
0: who reads all of her lines looking at cue cards right off screen. And she stays fully clothed because they couldn't afford anything else. (laughs) And (laughs) think of the movie that I've watched... Whew, probably a dozen times at this point mm-hmm. and every time I watch it with other people because why would I watch alone <laughs> I don't want to go crazy uh, I find more to enjoy in mm-hmm. it and thankfully it is actually available in bond uh, DVD through Intervision so pick it up if you haven't seen it and just
1: be ready for what it is a punishing yet pure experience I'm gonna mention two movies I think the most perfect bad movie of all time is Edward's Glen or Glenda mm-hmm. because it's it's just briefly it uh, is An artist expressing something very important to himself. And like a lot of bad movies, it blurs the distinction between good and bad because it's a very short skip from what he's doing in that movie and an experimental film like Flaming Creatures Mm -hmm. or something. But one that people might not have heard of is... If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Oh man, that movie's rough. Uh, It's 50 minutes long. It was directed by a filmmaker named Ron Ormond, who previously made exploitation movies like Cat Women of the Moon, I Mm -hmm. think was his. He survived a plane crash and decided to devote the rest of his life to God. So he filmed a sermon of this real fire and brimstone Southern preacher who... The thrust of his sermon is that America is... Departing from its moral foundation, and because of that, the communists are going to take over. Mm-hmm. And it cuts back and forth between his wacky sermon and literal I... interpretations of those horrible acts of the of the communist takeover. <laughs> so you know he's still an exploitation filmmaker.
0: Oh baby, you want to see some kid's head get cut off? Or are you going to
1: see it in this movie? So. It's called If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? It's only 50 minutes long. It's on YouTube and it's it delivers.
0: I just want two more notes. One of them is that if you want to see a truly bad movie and you've seen things and gone, ha ha ha, that's fun. I want to laugh. What else do you got, Canada? A little movie called Science Craze. Oh, man. <laughs> and this is like the bad movie in probably its most aggressive form.
1: You th- you've seen Manos the Hands
0: of Fate, and, and you're you think- like, oh, that's the worst film ever. <laughs> yeah, you ain't <laughs> seen like nothing C- yet. Citizen Kane <laughs> <laughs> compared to Science Crazy, it's like uh, a war film <laughs> at times. Yes, and check that one out. And also, if you want to discover bad movies, in not the necessarily like. Haha, ha, this is funny. I'm laughing at it. Check out the output of the label Something Weird. Oh, wonderful. Because they are a DVD label that just love these kind of outsider art. Mm-hmm. And most of the movies are really bad. Mm-hmm. But there's always usually something interesting to be found in it. I mean, Will just wrote an article about them recently. On my blog, yeah. Yeah. And if you want more information about them, check them out. They're recently partnered with the American Film Genre Archive to Mm. release new Blu-rays of films like The Zodiac Killer. I've
1: I've seen their first Blu-ray of The Zodiac Killer, and it's great. Or the upcoming Bat Pussy. Bat Pussy. I love Bat Pussy. It's I considered the worst porn film ever made. It was they found this print of an ultra low budget Batman porn parody that was made in the deep south in the early 70s. And it's mind-boggling. So check that stuff out. Something weird if you're listening and want to send the stuff, feel
0: free to do oh, it. Yeah. yeah. We we'll
1: we'll love free we'll review
0: it. it. So as far as letters go, as per usual, you can send us um, your questions or comments at club Podcast at gmail.com. We haven't said this in a while go and rate and review us on iTunes. Oh yeah, come on. Yeah, just do it. I don't even think we've cracked like 20 yet, so get on there. Yeah. Bring us up to 100. Yeah, All you listeners out there, it's not that hard. And this week on our Patreon episode, <laughs> deep cut, we're talking about Max Fleischer Popeye cartoons. Um, Will brought this topic. It's very personal to him. And we really <laughs> dig deep into the mythos of our everyone's favorite sailor who has a gouged out eye. <laughs> <Popeye>. <laughs> That's $5 a month. You get access to all our archives. We have like 25 episodes at this point of Patreon stuff. And uh, you get a new episode every week. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, the contest is still on. I haven't picked names yet. It'll happen next week. So if you want to join now, this is your last opportunity. There's three prizes to be won. A copy of a movie that I made, which is a recut of a (laughs) Japanese superhero TV show with subtitles that are very personal to my own life. (laughs) A collection of all the zines that I wrote for my screening society, the Laser Blast film society featuring
1: rare writing by will sloan
0: about perhaps jackie chan Mm -hmm. (laughs) and finally a mystery prize which i can give a little hint of what it contains one of the pieces is a batman forever trading card set (laughs) so go on patreon give us five bucks you'll be entered in the contest you can win next week and if we get 50 patreon subscribers before the next episode hits me and will are gonna watch all of steven odenkirk's some movies I gave an expiration date of, like, two weeks ago. Nope, I'll give him more time. Okay. And uh, Will just gave me a look of pure death, but... I hope we don't hit it. (laughs) I think that'll be a hallucinatory evening. Do we have any letters this week? Yes, which I said, like, ten minutes ago, and I completely forgot about. We do have one single letter, and it is from John Stevens. You may remember John Stevens as the man last week who said that he would... Like us to go deeper into the subjects that we talk about, but he loves the podcast. Well,
1: hey, uh, what, what was that? Like forty-five minutes on bad movies.
0: <laughs> he goes, gentlemen. So the Ernest Dickerson episode, you crushed it. The depth, the insight, the depth. <laughs> the Chantal Ackerman Appreciation and Cultivation Society of Medford, Ohio, does its hat. I think that reads a little bit sarcastic. You know what? I'll take it. The
1: prodigal son returns.
0: <laughs> May we never hear of him again. I'm glad I'm glad he's finally acknowledging how wrong he was. <laughs> How about an episode on writer director collaborations? Powell, Pressburger, Scorsese, Schrader, others who don't come to mind. Curious, especially of what happens when they stop working together. That's it. Keep destroying it. Not a bad idea. That is a
1: good idea. Uh, Scorsese, Schrader.
0: Yeah, we could have. We've talked about Schrader before, and we just
1: never got to him because. Might, might be an interesting way to like deal with Scorsese in a mm. way that isn't so cliche. Yeah, uh, absolutely. All right. So, what are we doing next week? Will. Next week, we'll be looking at the films of Andy Warhol and Paul Morrissey. Oh, boy. Flesh for Frankenstein. This, were, Of course, we're all familiar with the Andy Warhol films of the 60s. Empire, uh, Blowjob, mm-hmm. uh, Eat. Yeah. Uh, this These are the films he made he, or he produced after he was shot with uh, Paul Morrissey directing and which were more commercial in orientation. Flash, Trash, uh, mm-hmm. also his horror films Blood for Dracula Flesh for Frankenstein I don't think Andy was all that involved in them frankly no yeah
0: I think that's mostly Paul's work but uh, was it directed by Antonio Margaretti? who knows <laughs> alright so that's what we're going to talk about next week we're going to get Artie and Andy Warhol and until then my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan thanks for listening wow we're back for the end tag of the episode we have a special guest Uh, it's Peter Kaplowski, Midnight Madness programmer of the Toronto International Film Festival
2: hi everybody oh wait
0: I don't know if I'm allowed to be on the air (laughs) really you know I'm glad you haven't forgotten the little people on your rise to the top (laughs) yeah we were talking about like the disaster artists that do Seth Rogen film and Peter's gonna be like shaking
1: hands and patting them on the back yeah could you invite me on stage when you're up there with James Franco
0: no
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh geez
0: alright well me and Peter do the Laser Blast Film Society together which is a screening series at the Royal Cinema. And I just wanted to talk about the movie that we screened this month, which was No Retreat, No Surrender 3 Blood, Blood Brothers, <laughs> which we showed in the only
2: way that it should be watched it's 35 millimeter. Yes.
1: And which you suggested may have been the film's very first 35 millimeter screening in Canada.
2: Well, at least in public. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it just struck me that this collection that we've been pulling from, which is at the Media Commons. Thanks uh, to the
1: uh, Ontario Arts
2: Council. <laughs> thanks to the Ontario Arts Council. Yeah, at the University of Toronto. This collection largely inherited from Lionsgate, which inherited that collection from Cinepix Distribution and CFFP. It was like a famous players brand. And, I, and honestly, a lot of these films feel like movies that might have had print struck for distribution purposes mm-hmm. rather than actually screening to the public. There's a chance there might have been public screenings, but I have a feeling like the print that we have in our collection was probably not. Used for
0: that. No, I don't think so. I think it was probably made, like you said, to strike, like maybe VHS copies of
1: it or something like that. Yeah, or to, or to show to distributors,
0: yeah, right? Exactly.
2: Take, yeah. take it to AFM or to. So,
0: if you market. people are not uh, familiar with No Retreat, No Surrender 3 Blood Brothers, <laughs> it is a film about two brothers played by uh, martial artist Keith Vitali and Lauren Avalaga? Avedon. Avadon, yeah. Avedon? Star of King of the Kickboxers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. That are not actors. Yeah, no. But they are martial artists. And this is a film also produced by Seasonal Films, yeah. who were famous for in the 90s, they just wanted to make Hong Kong films in North America. That they, was their goal.
2: Yeah, they, they were actually inspired, though, by an American writer, I think his name is David Keithberg. Yeah, or who
0: who wrote all the movies.
2: Keith. And he uh, yeah, he wrote all the movies, he, he pitched Seasonal the idea of doing Hong Kong-style movies with an American cast. And you know they didn't, really, they didn't really. I mean, they worked out insofar that these movies made money. Like, yeah, I they, mean, No True
0: Surrender got two sequels. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. And unrelated, completely, yeah. From yeah, they're the completely other
2: ones. yeah, they're unrelated from each other. Became a, a brand tool. Uh, but I mean, basically, you just take the sort of most sordid parts of you know, like a Snake Eater movie. <laughs> oh
0: yeah, right? all our listeners are big fans of the no, Snake but like, Eater series. Like physically the Ontario you, shot of <laughs> punk art films. You, you
2: <laughs> take, but you take like yeah, the sort of sleazy uh, bargain bin. In, like a- American action movie aesthetics and you combine it with the finesse and technical precision of a Hong Kong stunt team and I think the result is like a pretty amazing kind of whiplash <laughs> yeah,
1: <work. it> is. <laughs> well few movies have higher highs and lower lows than this because <laughs> the fight scenes really are unbelievable just incredible stunts Yeah, uh, and the acting is some of the worst <laughs> I've ever seen but that's yeah. what
2: makes it beautiful yeah. right yeah. It's, it is it really it really it really does and it it makes it really endearing yeah they're very committed to
0: like um saying Our father is the only thing that kept us together.
2: Apparently the director was taking so long with his camera setups that he would just, he kept going to the writer. Can we cut more lines? Can we cut more (laughs) lines? Really? Which uh, makes me, there was more lines in this movie? Yeah, apparently the movie was much longer or much, uh, much, uh, acerbic than it is as it is now. But I I just wonder if this like led to the writer, just like having the characters express all their emotions in like one scene. The
1: the moment that actually made me bolt up in my seat and (laughs) and say, oh my God, was the cameo by George H.W. Bush. (laughs)
2: Yeah, which both (laughs) Justin and I had completely forgotten. We had completely forgotten.
1: Because normally if if a president shows up in a movie like this, it's grainy stock footage but it's... Or
2: or, or it's a fake president. (laughs) Yeah, or it's a fake president.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But in this one, it seems that they actually went to the airport with a camera and filmed him getting off Air, Air Force One because it's the same film stock yep. as the rest of the movie, yeah. and he gets off the, and,
0: <laughs> and the, they superimpose crosshairs like, over crosshair. him yeah. because the
1: plot is that somebody's going to assassinate the president, so I don't know how they got media accreditation to go to the airport
2: and or, shoot or even permission from uh, you know the White House to use footage <laughs> they, of they the did president. not get permission
0: from the White House to use <laughs> this footage yeah.
2: because I, yeah, it's just a really remarkable sequence, and I remember Watching it, I had forgotten about it from the first time I saw it, but this this time watching it, just seeing Air Force One land and remarking, "Oh, that's a very good replica of Air Force Force One." Like that's impressive. And
1: then he comes out, and then it (laughs) takes it takes a second for you to realize who it actually is.
0: (laughs) So when we uh, show the screen for the audience, like they really reacted to it. They're like, "Woo, yeah, getting into it." They booed the villain at the end. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. When, I wanted to ask you Peter when we pick movies like what is like the discussion that we have like do we want to laugh at this
2: well i think that i think the discussion we have is that oftentimes i want something that might punish the audience <laughs> <laughs> and and justin you you hold me back uh, I think I think rightfully so for the most part but you, you we remind ourselves that we want to deliver with the laser blast screenings at least yeah. something that is going to be fun and uh, is not going to feel mean and yeah. that, that the audience can kind of join the wavelength on and not necessarily laugh, we do try to discourage sort of empty sort of mockery where you yeah. just laughing I mean that's something it. that we think of when
0: we pick movies which is like we don't want this to be just bad movies every month that you laugh and at and I
2: feel like everything we've shown has at least one element in it that you could like say (laughs) one Well, like at least one. some of them have multiple elements, but like even something as like dire as like Winter Beast, I think. Oh, but that's beautiful. Well, exactly. I think there's something so charming about the world and the characters. How do we not talk about Winter Beast when we suggested our favorite bad movie? You know, it's
1: it's a great film, but I I've forgotten most of it. Really? Because I remember a Will
0: Sloane that when Winter Beast ended after we screened it, rushed home and tried to order it
1: online. I ordered it online and then I never got it, and I got a PayPal (laughs) refund because I guess they just abandoned the website, but. I'd love to watch it again. But I, with your programming styles, Peter, I associate you with the weird vanity projects. And Justin, I associate you with the kind of, like, dumb as rocks action movies. <laughs> like. It's actually sometimes,
0: like, we-
1: weirdly switched, where yeah. I'll have, like, something
0: really weird. I'm trying to think of one that we did that was, like...
2: I mean, Winter Beast was technically more of a UP. Yeah, that was me. I was yeah. like, we should play Winter And Beast. so was The Carrier.
0: Yeah, The Carrier as okay. well. Uh, which
2: I quite love. But... I mean,
0: I'm really... All for, like, the personal vision, even if it's not necessarily, like, a vanity project. Like, something like...
2: But you're a big believer that you can't subject the audience to a, a rocks like, a slow pace really. Yeah, that's right. Well, I sometimes like those <laughs> movies with the brown note soundtrack. <laughs> it's just like... Oh, the skid kid. Like, we're just like... <laughs> Like you, you just feel yourself rocking back and forth to the uh, lack of inertia that the movie, like, just hoping that the movie's gonna speed up.
0: I mean, the thing is, as a poor young man to pay ten dollars and then sit there and watch a movie, which is like, well, I
2: guarantee you, I'll still be over in eighty minutes. Yeah. Well, when I go it to la- feel like eighty minutes. When, when I go, go to Laser Thank Blast,
1: I'm luck. always hoping for a discovery. I'm yeah. always hoping to like fuck up my brain, make me like find some weird thing under a rock.
2: I, I think that's why I like these movies, though. I, I mean. I work as a, a programmer for a few festivals and I watch so many... A few
1: festivals. I so yeah, many, nothing, nothing
2: that big. Yeah, nothing
0: that <laughs> for Our International Film Festival. Yeah,
2: I uh, But I watch so many screeners and so many generic movies. I think the reason I have such an affinity for the quote-unquote so bad as good genre, which I don't like as a term. I prefer, the outsider
0: like, artist. outsider
2: artist or centric cinema is simply because I'm watching decisions that I have not seen done by <laughs> yeah. other filmmakers. That's mm. what I am drawn to. The fact that you know, the wazos and brains of the world are going out on a limb in a way that other people well, haven't done. Well, their brain
0: is making connections that, like, yes. <laughs> yeah. other
2: minds wouldn't. And I, and I feel like I feel like there is something instructive about these films uh, uh, because I think you can take some of their ideas and potentially make something really great out of it. I remember Nicholas Winding referencing after he saw Craig Denny's *The Astrologer*, which is like an infamous, oh, great
1: bad, movie. A, a classic
2: Laser Blast screening. Yeah, yeah, which which is you can't get this movie on home video, and hopefully one day they'll figure out the rights. How
0: of it. has it not come out yet? That's crazy. I,
2: I, I, there's too many too many rights cooks okay. in the kitchen. Yeah, but. Um, you know, he he said that he wanted to actually borrow ideas from that movie and just kind of you know try to improve upon them. But I actually think <laughs> you can't, I don't though. think he will. I don't well, he you will.
1: can see a lot of like Jess Franco in Nicholas Winding Refn's yeah. films. Yeah, so A lot of Mario Bava.
2: So uh, yeah, he apparently was going to borrow scenes from The Astrologer and, and recreate them in, in <laughs> Neon Demon. Uh, I think probably, really probably wow. that Citizen Kane dinner scene. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, think, that's I, a great scene. I think he was going to try and do <laughs> something like that or like try to. But but you know, I think you could look at a lot of the movies that we show and a lot of famous bad movies and take ideas from them and actually actually maybe make them more palatable but well that dinner that.
1: scene in the astrologer i think is actually good yeah yeah, yeah. i think yeah. that it's an interesting idea executed in a
0: way that's actually fun to watch and something else uh peter before i knew you you were on the ground floor as troll 2 man
1: yeah i, as,
0: I, I used to say that if you had died 10 years ago you would have been buried in a show in a shirt that says nil Gobb. peter Nil-Gobb has
1: a AM. cameo in best worst movie the documentary about troll 2 and did you You didn't discover it. You just heard it from someone else. I heard
2: heard about it. I actually heard about Troll, too, because I heard about Troll, someone on, on like, the Chud podcast. (laughs) The Chud podcast. The fourth fourth episode of the Chud podcast, when podcasts were just being born, uh, someone made a uh, a remark of one of the best air guitar scenes of all time was Michael Moriarty in the first Troll, which is true. It's one of the greatest air guitar scenes in film history. Michael Moriarty's in the first Troll? yeah, Yeah. And I rented Troll. Just to watch the Eragon scene, and Troll Two was on the other side of the DVD, and that's how I discovered Troll Two. Should I
1: watch Troll One because I like Moriarty? Like he's great. It's a yeah, great Michael okay. Moriarty
2: performance, and uh, uh, who else is in it? Uh, Louis uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus is in it. Okay, yeah. and Sonny Bono is in it. Like it's a weird. <laughs> right. It's a weird. John pass. Carl
0: Buechler, uh, director of the Great
2: Ghoulie Three, and Ghoulie Michael Moriarty's name in the movie is Harry Potter Senior. Oh, nice. <laughs> right. yes. Yeah. And-
0: okay, so you saw Troll Two. So wait. So you didn't? It wasn't somebody else, like an Austin, that discovered it. And no, like...
2: Zach Carlson was like kind of the guy that I understand mm. is really bringing like the way the troll 2 you know nostalgia yeah. wave back. But uh, <laughs> I, I heard it independently and just became a fan. That it was going on IMDb in the message board RAP yeah. and just seeing other people talk so about. it So did how bad you organize
0: a screening is. in Toronto? Cause... Yeah, I, I
2: contacted what I, I I basically noticed that um, Michael Paul Stevenson was being active on the IMDb message board. Yeah. So I contacted him and then contacted... Um, the dad that's in the movie? Yeah. Because I was Ge- at that George screening. George Hardy. George Hardy. Yeah. I contacted George Hardy. And then, we, and then they said, hey, you know what? We're, we're literally traveling around the country right now going to different screenings. And so I, we put on a Troll 2 screening in Toronto. At the Bloor at Cinema, the Bloor baby. Cinema, and I think we had like 300 people show up for it. It was packed,
0: wasn't it? Uh, like- that's
2: where Colin Geddes, who used to do Midnight Madness, he told me that like the year after that he just referred to me as the T2 kid
0: yeah Yeah. in the footage you're like people are in the lobby and you're like making them go through and so I remember there's
1: There's also a scene in the movie where you say the thing I like about Troll 2 is it's so sincere
2: (laughs) oh really
0: oh I didn't even know yeah
1: you hear your voice at one point (laughs) oh
2: cool
0: so you started this Troll 2 experience in Toronto when did it sour for you and you went that's it
2: I remember watching Best Worst Movie I think at Hot Docs and they were following it with the screening of Troll 2 right afterwards and Best Worst Movie I think it's a really terrific wonderful Mm -hmm. doc documentary, Mm -hmm. Choltu started and immediately like people were preemptively laughing about certain gags or like... Or just, like, repeating the gags out, like, saying it. And, yeah. and I just started going, oh, I don't, I'm, I'm not enjoying this so much. Like, I just, like, I think the movie is actually yeah. genuinely kind of wonderful. I, I, East, My friend Eastern once described it as, it's like a Treehouse of Horror episode. <laughs> like, it has yeah. that same kind of, like, surrealness and weirdness. And there's such a strong family unit in the film. Mm. Like, it feels like a great Lost Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode. And uh, I just didn't need other people <laughs> to try and make it funnier. Like, the movie yeah. is funny. And yeah. that's... That's been my you know that's my problem with the Room audience. I just feel like they're not making the movie funnier. And in, in the way that I feel like The Rocky Horror call and Response is there's more of a contract between movie and film there. Mm-hmm. It feels more like you're having sort of a camp enhancement of the film where the room has always felt a little cynical to me. So the bad movie is dead is what Peter's trying to say.
1: Doctor Frankenstein looks at his mom. I don't. Think
2: I don't think it's dead. I think you just. I think now we got to look deeper. Like, yeah, and, yeah. And the thing is, every you time got be people, on the ground floor. Every time people think they found the ultimate one, there's always something new. Yeah. Like you know, you just start
1: well oftentimes i go to laser blast and i feel genuinely grateful that like you found something you know yeah, like, yeah. and like, some
2: sometimes sometimes it's stuff that we found on our own and sometimes it's stuff that we found through other people yeah different film communities but it's, like, it's
1: good to know that there are untapped veins yeah. still out
2: there and that's that's why you know i i love i love watching movies because i feel like they never there there's always surprises <laughs> well except I'm, when you're programming yeah. right you're like oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm
1: not a fan of movies frankly i think too many of them are bad
2: yeah